And indeed, I think many testimonies could be shared. Some of our most difficult experiences of life turned out to be deeply purposeful and meaningful in our walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you, Delicia, for that uh, beautiful, beautiful song. I just want to extend an extra welcome. Uh, look around today, and uh, during praising, I was looking and saying, oh, wow, I, I, I see some, uh, some uh, new faces, and we're glad that you're here. I just want to extend that welcome to you again, and something we probably don't say often enough, that if you're looking for a church to call your home, uh, we would be honored to be considered as that place of worship, that place of family. Uh, we're not a perfect people, but we're trying to serve a perfect God, and we're trying to do our own part of being a place where family and relationship happens. I want to mention one more thing, and, and that is just a, a word of gratitude. I want to say thank you for allowing your faith, your relationship with Christ to, to kind of uh, evidence itself through the act of charity. And what I'm referencing is, is the offering we've been kind of mentioning uh, over the last several weeks for that hospital in Barry, Chad, uh, the Adventist Hospital where one of our own, Sonum, is currently working. And um, I, uh, I just want to praise God, as you may have noticed in the bulletin, collectively, and it really is a collective. I, I, don't, I don't know who gave, I don't know who didn't, and who this particular moment it was possible for you to give, but collectively uh, over $12,000 has been received. And uh, yeah. And I just want to praise God for that because it, you responded well and thank you. And all of that will go directly to its intended purpose, you know, save maybe an international banking fee or something like that. Otherwise, it's all going there and in a little contact with uh, Sonam, it has allowed her to reopen the nutrition center where boys and girls can receive food, especially babies that are born and mothers are dying and, and they can have formula. And as I understood it, that amount of money is likely, carefully managed, able to keep that nutrition center open for more than six months. And so we, uh, we praise God and thank you. Literally, some lives have been saved. And, uh, and I just want to say thank you uh, for that. Well, we've been journeying through the book of James. And uh, it takes a while to go through a letter like this. And I hope that your energies for the letter of James are still nice and strong and because we are, uh, we're going to close chapter 2 today, and we still have a few chapters to go through. But fortunately, James has a lot of variety and a lot of interesting topics that are very practical in nature. Uh, before we have prayer, let me just preface it in this way. There's a guy by the name of William Barclay who's a, a pretty well-known and very insightful Christian commentator. And he wrote this that's very on point for what we're going to study today. No one will ever be moved to action without faith. And our faith is not genuine unless it moves us to action. A young boy was on an errand for his mother. He had just bought a dozen eggs. They were placed in a bag and as he walked out of the store, he tripped over the threshold and dropped the bag of eggs and all the eggs broke and kind of made a mess there on the sidewalk. And people were noticing the little boy was embarrassed, he was disappointed in himself, he was worried about mom's reaction and so he was trying not 
to cry. You can see that face when it's all there except for the tears, right? And so a few people gathered to to see if he was okay. He tripped and and to tell him how sorry they were. And and some words were being spoken like, oh, that's, that's too bad. Or, I wish that didn't happen. And in the midst of those words, one man handed the boy a couple of dollars and said, here you go, son. Go buy some more eggs, and I'll clean this up. One man's faith was working. Let's pray about that. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we're here to dive into your word again, in this case, the letter of James, believing that when James first put it to paper, as it were, that you were inspiring him and guiding him, and what he wrote was truth for all those that would come to follow you. So, Lord, we believe that, and we're asking to hear that word afresh again today for us. And so, Lord, I pray for your blessing, that I would be able to do well to, to share Scripture, and that we would all do well to receive it with a teachable spirit, a humble heart, and a willingness to reflect upon our own walk with you in light of the word that you send. So, Lord, bless and uh, let your voice come through loud and clear. In your name we pray. Amen. Today, as I thought about how to best share this next portion of Scripture, I thought it would be very beneficial to, before we walk through it kind of carefully, to kind of get the big picture, as it were, and to just read the whole portion in one string. So let me share with you our portion of Scripture. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. James writes this, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of, of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, 
and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> These words were not meant to be uh, to stand on their own. In other words, they are tied and informed by James's prior teachings. And as we listen carefully to what we just read, we need to remember where it comes from and what James has already put forth that has led up to these statements. So to tie a little bit of a string together, remember what James said in chapter 1, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete meaning spiritual maturity. And so James has already told us, listen, trials play a role in producing a faith that is spiritually mature. In James 1, verse 22, he wrote this, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He's already told us that spiritually mature faith goes beyond just hearing God's word. It includes hearing God's word, but it goes beyond just the hearing, but it also moves into the doing of God's word. Then in James 1.27, he told us, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so as an example of a, a true religious expression of faith in God that both hears and does, is when followers of Jesus visit orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, James has told us, this is a snapshot of what that spiritually mature faith looks like when followers of Jesus visit widows and orphans in their distress. That is to say, spiritually mature faith, it will, not sometimes, all the time, it will find expression in caring for those who are disadvantaged, who are marginalized, who are hurting, who have a, a need in their life of any description of need. And James is talking about us on a personal, individual level. Your own personal walk with Jesus being expressed by having a heart for and caring for those who have need. And then... Finally, remember that James said this in James 2.13, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this passage, verse 13, is the immediate context for what we're unpacking today. We're picking up with verse 14. And so, 
after demonstrating, in last week's message, in that portion of Scripture, the beginning of chapter 2, after demonstrating that, that spiritually mature faith is expressed by loving your neighbor as yourself and doing that with an attitude of impartiality, James then writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, faith that finds expression in, in treating others with, with mercy and, and compassion and, and love and patience and kindness and forgiveness, uh, faith that finds an expression that looks like that towards others is a faith that leads to salvation over judgment. So, when we remember where we've come from, just for a few minutes, and, and we kind of track the flow of the text, we see readily that when we pick up James 2.14, we haven't left the topic. We're not bringing up something brand new. James is continuing to develop the same big idea. James continues to help us, the reader, to understand what type of faith overcomes judgment and leads to salvation. True saving faith is a faith that is both hearing and doing. True faith is evidenced through being merciful towards others, especially those who are in need. And so let us go back to verse 14. In the flow of that, James then writes... What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James begins in this section by posing two questions. And each question assumes a negative response. And that's literally built into the original language, that there were certain types of grammar that would indicate Here's a hypothetical or one of those rhetorical questions, and the answer is in the negative. And the first question is this. <clears throat> what use is it? <clears throat> excuse me, what use is it if a man claims to have faith in God, but has no deeds to evidence it? And the implied answer is, this faith is not of any use. The second question is, can this type of faith, thank you, really save? In other words, does a faith that only hears but doesn't do really represent a saving relationship with God? And the implied answer is no. This would not be a saving faith. Wow. When James speaks of faith, it isn't that complicated. We need to take just a moment to think about the word faith and the word works as James uses it. So when James speaks of faith, he's, he's nothing, it's really nothing more complicated than having a belief and a trust in God in your daily practical life. All, all through this, James has been talking about being a follower of Jesus and living your day-to-day -day life in a way that is reflective of how Jesus lived his life. He's really not trying to kind of create some big, huge theological dissertation on faith 
in, the, in, in every single angle and nuance. No, for James, it's a practical thing. Sometimes we want to make it more complicated than the writer made it so. When James is talking about faith, he's emphasizing daily life as a follower of Jesus and how our belief and trust in God impacts our life and how we live. Now, when James speaks of works, we have to be a little bit careful. When James speaks of works, he's not speaking about works performed to earn the merit of God. He's not doing that. He's not speaking about a, a, a way of salvation that your works can save you apart from faith. Not doing that. Paul, when Paul, the Apostle Paul in other books of the New Testament, when Paul uses the word works, he's often indicating a failed means of salvation. In other words, when Paul invokes the word works, he's often saying, listen, works of the law apart from faith will never produce a means of salvation. It won't get you there. Legalism pushes faith away and leans on works of the law as your method of salvation. And Paul says that doesn't work. And so when Paul uses the word works, he's very much in that arena. But for James, that isn't so much the case. The works James has in mind are, they're never done apart from faith, but they're done in faith. That is to say, works are not done instead of faith, but are done because faith. So be clear, very clear. James isn't suggesting that works must be added to faith in order to for it to be a saving faith. What James is saying is that true saving faith naturally reveals itself with the works of God. James is saying that true saving biblical abiding faith in God naturally reveals itself by doing the works of God. It is the very nature of genuine faith to express itself in doing the works of God by being merciful, by loving your neighbor as yourself, by, by being forgiving and patient and kind. And Listen, James doesn't oppose faith while championing works. Too many people have read his words and say, see, he's, he's kind of getting rid of faith and he's elevating works. That's not what James is doing at all. James doesn't oppose faith while championing works. James is teaching that true saving faith is a faith that works the works of God. So James then illustrates what he has just put forth in those questions with a hypothetical kind of if scenario. And although it's presented as a kind of if scenario, it likely represented very present issues there in the church. If a brother or sister, so hit the pause button, his illustration is talking about somebody within the community of Christ, a fellow believer dynamic. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, 
being by itself. So James describes a, a fellow believer who's desperately in need. They are naked and have no food. Now, it's very unlikely that in reality there were folks walking around in the Christian circles that literally were completely stark naked and had not a single morsel of food. James is probably exaggerating just a little bit. The description in language is that, that if a brother or sister is naked and has zero food to the extreme, I think James is exaggerating to express if somebody is in desperate need, they really need some help. So in this illustration, here's the person in great need and a fellow Christian, another believer, who we presume is in a position to help, responds with nice words, but fails to offer any real assistance. To paraphrase it just a little bit, the kind of words that might be spoken, someone is in great need and the other believer may say, ooh, that sounds rough. I hope things improve, that you find some clothing and, and you find something to eat, and, and then you distance yourself from the situation. And even if these words were spoken in sincerity, James, I think, would still challenge that because he says, what good are those words? The naked can't cover themselves with your words. The hungry can't feed themselves with your words. What good are the words? Your brother and sister in Christ is still lacking clothing and is still hungry. Even so, faith without works is dead, being by itself. Again, James is no way suggesting that we are saved only works and not faith. He makes that pretty clear. He says, faith by itself is dead. He clearly says that the type of faith that is only words, the type of faith that is only kind of an intellectual knowledge of truth, the kind of faith that is only hearing God's ways, is not really true saving biblical faith. Faith that generates in the heart a desire to be merciful and a conviction to not just think that, but to actually show mercy, that is revealing a full faith in God. To phrase it in the negative, faith that is not outwardly operating is inwardly dead. Someone described it this way, and they described it genuine faith like a pebble that is tossed into a pond. And, and they, saw, they said these words, having faith is like throwing a pebble into a pond. You can't throw it in without creating little ripples. If there are no ripples, that's evidence that there was no pebble in the first place. Listen, I have witnessed in my ministry, in my life, beautiful outworkings of this type of faith that not only hears but does. 
I've seen it here in this church many times over. When we see others in need, genuine deep faith in God compels us to action. And often, we don't have the resources to fix the problem that's causing the need in this individual's life. And, and often, we lack the insight to even know how to fix that need that's creating the, the problem in someone's life. But working faith is not an all-or-none proposition. In other words, if you have the opportunity to do something, though small it may be, true working faith does that. It's not a, if I can't make it all well, then there's really nothing I can do. It's not an all or none proposition. Faith that reveals that, that Jesus is truly in the heart of a believer will compel the believer to, to do what they can and when they can, even if it isn't seemingly that much. To someone who's in financial need, a few dollars helps. To someone in need of, of, of better clothing, a new shirt is quite an uplift. To, to someone who may be in need socially or relationally, a shared meal is an overwhelming blessing. To someone that is deeply stressed over some circumstance in their life, a, a moment of attentiveness and, and a moment of sincere shared prayer is a very calming and encouraging thing. To maybe someone who is grieving a, a loss in their life, literally just a, a shared hug can bring healing in their grief. And to someone who maybe is in need of, of guidance, uh, a thoughtfully and very purposefully shared bit of life wisdom. It's like a compass that points them north and it meets their needs. And, and what I'm trying to help you to understand is James uses the amplified example of someone that is naked and absolute starving, but, but that's not often the needs that we run across in our life, is it? Need of any description, whether it be the tangible physical needs of life or just emotional needs or, or whatever it is, true saving faith in Jesus sees those needs and says, is there a way that I can step into that and help meet that need? Listen, verse 18 comes along and James does something interesting. James, it's almost like as he's writing, he's anticipating the thoughts of those who might object. And so in his writing, he uses kind of a literature technique where he inserts the voice of an imaginary opponent. And it reads this way. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I'll grant you this. The language here, it's a little bit tricky. <laughs> the language here doesn't lend itself well to just, a, oh, let me just read it straightforward, and I got it, understood. And so, if I may, let me try to express what James is saying based upon all of the kind of the learning journey I myself have been on in preparation to share with you the letter of James. 
And so he comes upon and he's writing and he says, I can hear the objections. And so he inserts one of what he thinks is their primary objection. So those who might object would voice their complaint something like this. This little phrase, you have faith and I have works. It's kind of loaded. So what might be behind that sounds like this. Somebody might say, James, come on. Faith is a good thing. Works are a good thing. But both are good expressions of pure and undefiled religion. One individual doesn't necessarily need to possess both. One follower of Jesus might have faith and the other might have works. James, don't be so determined to press the two together. You carry on with your works and I'll carry on with my faith. And both of us are truly being religious in our own way. Now, the translations in English don't make this very clear, but as I understand it and as I read it in the text, right there at the end of that phrase, you have faith and I have works, there's a semicolon. And that little break in the sentence is indicating that the objector has made his objection and now James is responding to that imaginary objector. And so James then responds to that statement, show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. James will not accept that faith and works can be separated. James has already written that, that faith detached from works is of no use, verse 14. It's not saving faith, again, verse 14, and is dead, verse 17. So James, he's, he forcefully responds, and, and he essentially says this, Tell you what, objector, show me your proof that faith and works can be separated. Tell you what, objector, show me your faith without works. And James, I believe, is confident in putting that challenge out there because he firmly believes that the only way to discern if true faith resides in the heart is by the evidence of how that life is lived. And he learned that from Jesus. By their fruits you shall know them. By what you do with the Spirit of God living in you. By your fruits, you shall know them. So James says, go ahead. Prove to me. Show me a deep, abiding, saving faith in Jesus without any works. You can't do it. So then he continues to kind of say, here's what you do. He says, you try to show evidence of your position, and I'll show you evidence of my position. I will show you my faith evidenced by what you can see by what I do, by being both a hearer and a doer, for by their fruits, Jesus says, you'll know. Well, James is strongly convicted here. <laughs> He's presenting a, a very strong conviction that genuine saving faith includes both trusting Christ as Savior and following Christ as Lord. And he now supplies four examples to demonstrate his conviction. He's going to point us to demons, fallen angels in the satanic forces. He's going to point us to the father of their Jewish nation. Remember, these were Jewish Christians he primarily was writing to. He's going to point to Abraham. Third, he's going to point to Rahab, a, a prostitute in the ancient Jericho city. And finally, he's going to look at the very nature of man's physical nature as being the body and the breath. And so, 
Let's get into that. Verses 19 to 20. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe that and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The Jewish Christians to whom James is writing, they had a deeply ingrained in their mind the daily prayer, the Shema. Every day of a Jewish person's life, they would hear and be called upon to pray this prayer. And the Shema is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it would continue. And James affirms them saying, You do well to believe in this truth about God. The Lord is one. But then he says, But demons also believe that truth about God. They hear it. They have a knowledge of it. And their belief in this truth about God produces nothing but shuddering fear. In other words, their faith in God accomplishes nothing. So James's point, saving faith is not just an intellectual acceptance that something is true. Saving faith is not just accepting as true what you hear. Saving faith must go deeper than just knowledge. It must be knowledge, faith, and acting on that knowledge works. So let's take a quick look at James's second example, and he points back to Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected, matured. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James knows his reader, and he points to perhaps the most prominent, important Jewish figure in their heritage in the Old Testament record to support what he is saying. He points to Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, a man declared righteous, a man called a friend of God. And the moment that Abraham's life, or the, the moment in Abraham's life that James is kind of drawing from is in Genesis 22. And, and here's a very quick summary. Earlier than Genesis 22, Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and promises to form a a special people, a special nation that God would call his very own, and this nation was to come through the generations of Abraham and Sarah. Well, Sarah was barren. Later in life, though, Abraham was old, and he and Sarah gave birth to a son, Isaac, and the promise of God seemed to take true root, that the promise of God would indeed come through Isaac, and a great nation for God would be formed. But in Genesis 22, Abraham faced a truly, truly difficult task. God comes and speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, take now your only son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on an altar in the land of Moriah. But Abraham's deep faith in God compels him to obey. And he follows through. But at the very last moment before Isaac is sacrificed, God has seen the heart of Abraham that was willing, his faith was willing to follow through with doing the work that God had put forth for him to do. God halts it, he intervenes, and he prevents the sacrifice. 
And Abraham there proved his faith by his willingness to obey. Because of his faith that God has promised he must have a way. Abraham was willing to obey and he was reckoned to stand right before God. Abraham believed in God's promise and he put that faith in God into action. And that's what James is using here as an illustration. His powerful point is this. Abraham's faith was working. And that resulted in perfected faith. Perfected faith being spiritually mature faith that works. Remember James 1.4, tested faith develops maturity. And Abraham's testimony demonstrates that a person is justified before God. Not just by faith alone, but by faith that works. James now demonstrates the same essential truth, but he points to an Old Testament figure that could not be more different than Abraham. Abraham, the father of the nation, the friend of God, declared to be righteous, but now, James says, consider Rahab. Rahab, who had been a pagan. Rahab, who was a woman. Rahab, who was a prostitute in ancient Jericho. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Like Abraham, Rahab, in her moment story that we see in Scripture, was also considered to be right before God in what she did. Rahab's story is in Joshua chapter 2. She was an inhabitant of the ancient city of Jericho. Jericho was that first city as the, the children of Israel, after wandering the wilderness for 40 years, they were going to enter into the promised land. And, and Jericho was that kind of first city, that first barrier of faith into God's promise for them. And, and Rahab lived in that city. And, and she was apparently hearing the reports of the mighty acts that God had done on behalf of His people. The Red Sea, the, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the manna, the, the quail, all of these amazing stories and and having heard these reports of what the God of Israel had done on behalf of his people she became convicted that Israel God is the God of gods Joshua 2 verse 11 is her statement of faith she said this God is the God of heaven above and on the earth below and so when Israel's spies entered Jericho she took them in she hid them from the king of Jericho, and then she helped them to safely escape. She did not just say, I'm rooting for you. Good luck. Go in peace and be well. No, at the risk of her own life, her conviction that these people's God is the true God, I believe that, and her conviction took action in the need of the moment. So when the Israelites took the city, Rahab was spared, and she united with God's people. And in Jewish history, she has become a, a, a Jewish hero, counted alongside other women of faith like Sarah and Esther. In fact, in the book of Matthew, she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus as part of the line of Jesus. Her faith was young, it was simple, but it was not just an intellectual idea. Her faith took action at the risk of her own life by showing mercy to Israelite spies. James doesn't affirm Rahab's previous life, but he affirms her living faith. 
James then offers his final description of just how important it is to understand that genuine saving faith is a faith that expresses itself in obedience to God. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He points to the the life force that animates our, our very existence, the breath of God. And he says this, the body is dead when the breath of life is no longer present. And he correlates that to say this, faith is dead when works are not present. And if it's helpful, you can kind of flip that in the other direction. When the breath of life is present in the body, then the body is alive and and vibrant and active and living. So it is. When works are present, then we know that faith is alive and vibrant. We often hear, and absolutely rightly so, that a man can never achieve salvation by works. And James isn't contesting that, not one second. Works as a means of salvation will always prove to be a failed endeavor. And yet, the type of faith that is genuine and represents a saving relationship with Jesus is not just an intellectual knowledge, but an active, working faith. What James has taught us here is well established in the New Testament. He's not an outlier all by himself. He remembers hearing John the Baptist preach the message of repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah. And as he called for repentance, he also would call men and women to prove their faith and repentance by their fruit. Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist's message, bear fruit worthy of your repentance. Jesus spoke very clearly that simply professing to know Him doesn't necessarily represent saving faith. Those who both know Him and do the works of God will be saved. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Even Paul, who is oftentimes told to be in direct conflict with what James has just shared, No, even Paul preached this truth in his own way and in his own words. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. All of that absolutely true. But verse 10, when you've received the gift of God, by faith received the gift of God, then we are now his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. James never suggested that we're saved by works, and Paul would later agree. James did say that that we are saved by having a faith that works, and Paul would later agree. Paul says clearly, we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. In fact, in Philippians 2, Paul put it this way, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what do we do with this? These are heavy truths. What should we do with a teaching like this, drawn 
from James's letter. James has actually given us a pretty big gift here. James has given each of us a, a spiritual tool to evaluate our faith in Jesus. Do you, do I, have the type of saving faith that James teaches? That's the question, isn't it? Is your faith, is my faith, living and active, doing the works of God, giving evidence in the fruit of my life that I truly have a saving faith in a relationship with Jesus? That's the question. And the question is, how can you tell? And it's the gift that James has given us here. How can you tell? When you're given the opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself, how do you respond? When you are individually giving the opportunity to, to help someone in need through kindness, through acts of mercy, compassion, through charity, when you're given that opportunity as an individual to help someone in need, do you act? Do you see and then engage? Do you hear the opportunity before you and then do? Do you try to do what you can even if it may seem like it's not that much? What James has given us here is not just truth, but a way to reflect on our lives to say, what kind of faith am I living in? I encourage you, I encourage myself to think on these things and to ask God to give us an even greater portion of the living, active faith that works the works of God. Our Father in heaven, that's our prayer. Lord, give us the type of faith. Work in us, Lord, through your Spirit, and give us the type of faith that does the works of God. Lord, I pray for each of us here that you would bear fruit in our lives like ripples on the water that evidences to the world around us and to ourselves that we truly are walking in a saving relationship with you. Help us, God. We love you, we trust you, and we know that you will continue with us. In your name we pray, amen.